You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 32, Charles, King of Burgundy? Charles the Bold inherited a lust for territorial expansion from his predecessors, and when an old conflict in Helders reared its head in 1468, it put him in a position to intervene in Helders in much the way that he had in Liège. Not just satisfied with this, he also sent a sternly worded letter to the power brokers of Friesland, strongly suggesting that they should think about accepting him, the Count of Holland, as their rightful ruler. Ah, remember the days of haughty princes threatening Frisians with subjugation? Well, they're back. By 1473, Charles's army was in Helders and threatening Friesland. Now, more regions of the Low Countries were going to be exposed to the process of Burgundian centralization, which Charles ramped up by establishing the Parliament of Mechelen. Mechelen. Malines. There's so many ways I've called this town, you can pick and choose your favorite. Charles had become so powerful that he had started making eyes had not only a royal title, but an imperial one. In 1473, he went to meet the emperor in Triers, and to all onlookers, it was pretty clear that he was going to leave this meeting with a crown on his head. Spoiler alert, he wouldn't. When Charles the Bold married Margaret of York in 1468, the English Chancellor announced the news to the Parliament in London by describing Charles as, quote, one of the mightiest princes of the world that beareth no crown, end quote. This backhanded compliment must have rankled with the image Charles held of himself, and indeed most historians agree that he would spend the rest of his life pursuing said crown. In a speech to the four members of Flanders, those great and powerful cities, Charles said of his rule, quote, I do not doubt that I shall remain ruler as long as he wills, in spite of all those who regret it, because God has given me the power and the means which I should not advise you to test. I would rather prefer that you hate me than despise me, because neither for your privileges, which are in any case worthless, nor for any other reason, will I allow myself to be thwarted, nor will I allow anything to detract from my majesty or sovereignty, and I am strong enough to prevent such a thing. End quote. So as you can tell from those words, Charles had first-class tickets on himself, and he felt they were going to get him pretty far. Brimming with self-confidence and arrogance, he set about continuing to meddle in areas of the Low Countries, which up until now had remained out of his family's grasp. 
One opportunity to do this came to bear in May 1468 at a chapter of the Order of the Golden Fleece. As Duke of Burgundy and thus sovereign of this illustrious order, Charles was presiding over a meeting in Bruges in which two of the members came under admonishment for waging war against each other. If you remember back to episode 24, The Lavish and the Revolting, you'll recall that disputes between members of the Order of the Golden Fleece were to be tabled before the Order to be resolved. It was simply not a good look for its members to be fighting one another on the battlefield. The two men in conflict were Adolf, the Duke of Helders, and John II, the Duke of Cleves. We've actually met Adolf before, back in 1456, before he had become the Duke, when Philip the Good was preparing to lay siege to Daefender, after installing his bastard son David onto the Episcopal throne of Utrecht. You might recall that Adolf and his mother appeared suddenly at Philip's camp, telling him that Adolf's father, the Heldarian Duke Arnold, had allied to the Frisians and was planning an attack on the Burgundians. The outcome of this had been Philip throwing his support behind the younger Adolf, which included admitting him into the Order of the Golden Fleece. In the ensuing power struggle, Adolf sought and succeeded in attaining the support of the major towns against his father, and Helders descended into an on-again, off-again civil war. The respective parties in Helders reached some sort of peace agreement in 1459, but this disintegrated within two years. One night, at the beginning of 1463, the old Duke Arnold, seemingly safe in his castle at Hraver in the depths of winter, was roused from his slumber and promptly abducted by his son's men. While still wearing just the tunic and his wimple, which is a wonderfully endearing headdress that one wears when sleeping, he was hauled off over the frozen Meuse River and taken to Lobert Castle, where he would remain in captivity for the next eight years, whimpering in his wimple. After Duke Arnold was abducted, his ally, John II, Duke of Cleves, loudly began letting it be known how displeased he was with what had happened. Supported by Arnold's brother, William of Egmont, John II thus went to war against the younger Adolf to try and get old Arnold back. Which brings us back to this meeting of the Order of the Golden Fleece in Bruges, 1468. The issues in Helders and complications related to it were discussed heavily, and both Adolf of Helders and John of Cleves came under admonishment. In his role as Sovereign of the Order, Charles forbade either of them from making war against the other. The punishment for doing so would be military intervention by the other members of the Order. For whatever reason though, Within six months, Charles had actually wavered to the side of John II of Cleves and began discreetly funding him, as well as creating closer bonds with William of Egmont, who we will meet again later. Despite all of his successes so far, Charles's personal ambitions had not been sated, and he was always looking for further opportunities to pump up his prestige. If Charles was power-hungry, then he was going to shake the tree whose roots extended across his territories to loosen the fruits of town liberties so that he could greedily gobble them all up himself. In January 1469, an envoy of Chentenars travelled to Brussels to give to Charles Ghent's formal apology 
for the uprising which had occurred during his joyous entry a year and a half earlier. This event was resplendent with the kind of symbolism that the Burgundian dukes had long employed to communicate to their subjects the nature of their relationship. Ruth Putnam describes it as follows, quote, Within, the great hall of the palace showed a splendid setting for a brilliant assembly. The most famous Burgundian tapestries hung on the walls, episodes from the careers of Alexander, of Hannibal, and of other notable ancients form the background for the duke and his nobles, knights of the golden fleece, in festal array. As spectators too, there were all the envoys and ambassadors then present in Brussels, from France, England, Hungary, Bohemia, Naples, Aragon, Sicily, Cyprus, Norway, Poland, Denmark, Russia, Livonia, Prussia, Austria, Milan, Lombardy, and other places. Are there any other places? <laughs> she goes on. Charles himself was installed grandly on a kind of throne, and to his feet, Olivier de la Marche conducted the civic procession of penitence before this pompous gathering after a statement of the city's sin and sorrow. The precious charter, called the Grand Privilege of Ghent, was solemnly read aloud and then cut up into little pieces with a penknife. End quote. The message here could not have been louder or clearer except if he had perhaps used a larger knife to slash it into pieces and then set those pieces on fire. But regardless, everybody in the room knew precisely how Charles felt about the so-called rights of his city-dwelling subjects. They were, as he put it, in any case, worthless. One of the many dignitaries present at this ceremony was a man named Sigismund, a Habsburg relative of the current emperor, Frederick III. Sigismund had inherited a chunk of land in the upper Alsace along the Rhine River extending to Switzerland. He was having a lot of trouble with a general alliance of angry Swiss towns and bodies called the Eidgenossen, who contested his dominion in their region. Sigismund was also broke, and as he sat and watched the splendor with which Charles was able to demonstrate his power over Ghent, he carried an idea that had first been discussed between Frederick and Philip the Good all the way back in 1463. Charles's daughter and sole heir, Mary, should be married to the son of the emperor, a young Maximilian of Habsburg. In talks with Charles, Sigismund brought the idea up with him. This was certainly an appealing prospect for Charles, and one that he would use as leverage to wield in discussions with the emperor. By this stage, there are accounts of multiple alliances being made on the back of promises for Mary's hand, including marrying her off to the son of the King of Aragon, the grandson of the King of Sicily, the King of England's brother, the elector Palatine's nephew and heir, the Duke of Brittany, the one-year-old Dauphin of France, his uncle, Louis XI's brother Charles, the Duchess of Savoy's son, and the Duke of Lorraine. Basically, if you were a single noble man in Western Europe, Somebody, somewhere, probably Charles, had had a discussion about you potentially marrying Mary. As you can probably guess, she is going to play an extremely important role in everything that is to come, and all of this wrangling over who she would marry demonstrates how complicated the political positioning was in Europe at the time. In light of who she would eventually marry, being Maximilian of Habsburg, it is interesting to ponder what might have unfolded had any of these other proposals and arrangements come to fruition? 
Either way, if you're interested in finding out how you would go marrying Mary, go and play Europa Universalis 4, where the Burgundian succession is one of the fun random events which can be triggered. Sigismund's main aim in meeting Charles was to attain a promise of military and financial support from him against the Swiss Eidgenossen. He got this assurance, though it came at a cost. He had to mortgage his lordship of the Upper Alsace to Charles, and had to agree to petition the Emperor that Charles be given a royal title, namely, King of the Romans. Not long after this, another opportunity arrived when the deposed King of Bohemia, George Podibrad, also sent word to Charles, seeking his help. Podibrad was in conflict with the Pope, the Emperor, and the King of Hungary, who himself was still facing a consistent threat from the Ottomans, this was framed wholly as a holy threat that demanded a strong military-minded king to stave it off. It was in this that Podibrad was asking for Charles' support. In a draft agreement that still exists, Charles clearly agreed to reconnect and reconcile Podibrad with the Pope, in return for Podibrad's whipping up support among the prince-electors for Charles' ascension to become King of the Romans a strong and wealthy monarch who could confront the Ottomans. Should he achieve this, Charles would be putting himself directly in line for the imperial throne when Frederick III eventually passed on. This agreement remained only in draft form and did not come to anything, but what these two cases show us is the direction in which Charles was focusing his ambition. He wanted to become emperor. If Charles could inspire the most powerful people in Europe into thinking that he could and would rally Christendom against the infidel Turks, that would play greatly in his favour. There is lots of evidence that he received the support of the Pope, among others. Now that the groundwork was being laid, the best thing Charles could do would be to keep building his strength by pacifying recalcitrant towns and countering the French threat and expanding his territorial domains. So in this context, it is tempting to think that Charles had already developed a strategy to add Helders to his realm when he chose to support Arnold over his son Adolf in their conflict. This, however, is more likely just the benefit of hindsight. There is no evidence that he had designs on Helders yet. There is evidence, however, that his plans for territorial expansion at this point were far more focused on another great chunk of the Low Countries which had not yet come under his family's rule, Friesland. Friesland, as you will remember, had entirely lost its western chunk to Holland centuries before. The remaining parts, which were mainly provinces called Oostego and Westego, had steadfastly denied the advances of the Counts of Holland and had remained weary of the Burgundian Dukes once they had taken that moniker for themselves as well. A point of contention with Frisian identity was also the city of Groningen, which some saw as part of the Frisian domains. If you would ask someone in Groningen, however, they would more likely have proclaimed the city's independence or possibly loyalty to the Bishop of Utrecht as the ruler of the Ulfrestict. In October 1469, Charles summoned some representatives of Friesland and had them told that they needed to accept him as their rightful sovereign. A quote from the Charter Book of Friesland says, quote, It was explained to the deputies on behalf of my lord that his predecessors, Counts of Holland, had been true and rightful lords of Frisia. 
even though the said Frisians of Ostergor and Westergor had at certain points taken over their government themselves without obeying my lord's predecessors, nor recognising them as their legitimate lords, as they should have done. It was finally requested on my lord duke's behalf of the said people of Ostergo and Westergo, who belong to his true patrimony, in the persons of their deputies, that they receive and accept him as their rightful lord, as they are bound to do by law. End quote. This was a year after the destruction of Liege, and as much as they valued their autonomy, the Frisians were acutely aware of how destructive Charles could be. While they were never going to agree to these demands, they preferred that their towns not suffer the same fate as Dinant and Liège. The representatives prevaricated, delayed, and managed to not give anybody a satisfactory answer, instead arranging for further talks to take place later, six months later indeed, in Enkhäuser. When these talks rolled around, the Frisians remained unbudged in their autonomous pretensions. The Burgundian representatives assured them that, under Charles's recognised rule, Frisian laws, liberties, privileges, and customs would remain unabused. Oh, except for if Charles's prerogative demanded otherwise. Sure, they might have to pay some taxes, but they would not be held to military service. It's a good deal, right? The town of Dockham was the only part of Friesland that thought this was a good deal and came to agree to these terms. They sent some ambassadors down to St. Omer and swore fealty to Charles as their legitimate and true ruler on the 8th of July 1470. The rest of the Frisian embassies, keeping in mind that Friesland was not a united province in the best of times, were able to unite on this matter and kindly told the Burgundians, no. It must have been a surprise to them a day later then, when Charles released a drawn-up agreement in Latin that read as if Dockham had been joined in agreement by the rest of the Frisian embassies. He began making plans and preparations for a campaign in the far north, and in November, declared war on Friesland. Uh-oh. If the Frisians were to escape the kind of Burgundian wrath to which the Liegeois had been subjected, they would need quite a bit of luck. Which, by the by, brings us to everybody's favourite segment. Definitely Julian's favourite segment. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Woo! Luck. Well, it's not that the Dutch invented luck, exactly, but the English word we use comes from the Middle Dutch word look, which is a less throaty way of saying geluk, meaning happiness or good fortune. And the Frisians got a stroke of geluk, because guess which European monarch couldn't go an entire episode about the history of another country without being mentioned? That's right, Louis XI, the King of France and implacable nemesis of Charles, but we are not going to pander to Louis XI's dominance of this period of Dutch history. All we are going to say is that despite all their diplomatic dancing in Conflans and Peron, and despite the tasty Treaty of Ham, from 1470 until Charles's death, he and Louis were pretty much always at war with one another. In the winter of 1470-71, Louis made another attempt to grab back those Somme towns that was such a point of contention and Charles had to send his military forces off to deal with this. So the Frisians just kept on doing their Frisian thing, frizzing about. But although Friesland would stay out of his reach for now, Helders would not. 
While he was dealing with the French, Charles was in Hesden and had the young Duke of Helders, Adolf, staying with him. At Charles's order, a crack team of his troops went one night to Lobert, broke into the castle and rescued the older Duke Arnold, who was then also brought to Hesden in January 1471. Charles now had both contending Dukes of Helders under his control. He began a process of pressuring the younger Adolf into ceding to his father. But fair play to him. Adolf rightfully told Charles that he was a vassal of the Emperor and would only answer to him in this regard. From everything we know about Charles, we know that this would have annoyed him greatly. Perhaps this is what prompted him to release the older Arnold back into the wild where he could set about trying to re-establish control over the towns of his territory which had sided with his son in the Civil War. Adolf was to remain, as a guest of course, with Charles at Hesden. Adolf's people didn't quite agree and citizens in Nijmegen became extremely concerned for his welfare, meaning that Charles had to send them reassurances that, I'm not keeping him prisoner, it's just a bit of diplomacy. On the 10th of February, however, Adolf was sick of Charles's diplomacy and decided to nope out of the whole thing. He effected an escape from the Burgundian court. He got as far as the outskirts of Namur, where he was caught and arrested on a boat. Thereafter, he was no longer a guest, but officially a prisoner of the Duke of Burgundy, mostly held in Courtreich for the next several years. Meanwhile, the older Duke Arnold was gallivanting around Helders after eight years' absence, greatly failing to inspire his subjects to get around him. His only success was in the town of Hrava, which meant his prospects of succeeding were Hrava indeed. Possibly he was just digging his own Hrava. The towns of Helders and Zutphen outright rejected Arnold and reaffirmed their loyalty to the younger Adolf. In 1471, they appointed lieutenant governors on his behalf, whose job was to rally resistance and tell Burgundy where they could stick their banners. In this sentiment, they found a willing ear in Louis XI, who was always happy to encourage and enable destabilization within the Burgundian sphere of influence. He, along with a bunch of German princes, petitioned for the release of Adolf over the course of 1471. Charles being the stubborn man he was, however, these were all in vain. By the end of that year, the issue was not settled, and Arnold could not unite the duchy behind him, even while his son languished in captivity. Trying to boost his power levels, he offered Charles to become the guardian of Helders, which is really writing on the wall kind of stuff. It took another year, but by December 1472, he had little choice but to mortgage Helders and Zutphen to the Duke of Burgundy for the sum of 300,000 Rhenish florins. Arnold was an old fellow by now, and he'd spent years of his life in prison. He'd run out of steam. In February 1473, he signed his will and named Charles as his heir. Conveniently for Charles, he then died three days later, and so it was that the Duchy of Helders came into the Burgundian realm. But of course, things weren't going to be so simple, as the towns of Helders were not going to concede so easily. But we will get to that on the other side of this ad break. Welcome to the... Welcome back. 
it seems certain that whatever Arnold had done with his will, by 1473, Charles had decided he was going to bring his Burgundian death train to bear on Helders. He got the go-ahead from the emperor and sorted things out with any other ambitious nobles who may have had a claim to Helders, one even being the King of Scotland, who Charles just ignored. In May, Charles assembled his troops outside of Maastricht. On the 9th of May, they set off north, following the Meuse River. Let's not over-glorify the mission. As Vaughan puts it, quote, The campaign which followed was carefully planned, well executed, and brilliantly successful. But the opposition was inherently weak, comprising a section of the nobles only in some of the towns. There was nobody to field an army against the Duke of Burgundy. He merely had to mop up the few defended places. End quote. It is unavoidably tempting to compare Helders to Liège. We have spent more than a couple of episodes exploring the persistent endeavour exhibited by the Liégeois to safeguard their liberties against a bishop and a duke who would have it otherwise. In Helders, however, the situation was far different. The four bigger towns had their own senses of identity and were often quarrelsome among one another. The territory had also been living with the divisiveness of the father-son feud, and loyalties were split across the breadth of the land. What we saw in Liège was desperation and guerrilla resistance. The same was not the case in Helders. Ruhrmond gave up before the Burgundian army even set off from Maastricht, sending a party there to hand in the city keys for when Charles arrived. There you go, Charles. Here's a key. Let yourself in. Help yourself to the pottage. As the invading force went north, its troops terrified the people and sauntered into towns and villages. There were some displays of resistance, led by the Count of Moors, whose own lands were not even in Helders. Fenlo withstood for a few days before falling under the ferocity of the Burgundian guns. Charles enacted some punishments, executing suitable enough people to let them all know they'd been very naughty by defying him. He coupled this with a stern talking to at the city hall, which the town citizens had to sit through uncomfortably. Nijmegen provided the greatest resistance, fortified behind stout walls and with an indelible sense of civic pride and stubbornness. Here, many of those who had been actively fighting against the Burgundians gathered for a last stand. On the 28th of June, the siege began, but it would only last for three weeks. No other town or city sent aid or offers of help, and during the three weeks, every other still-free body in Helders capitulated. When Nijmegen fell on the 17th of July, it signaled the fall of Helders to Burgundy. Helders, as Charles himself observed, had been, quote, reduced completely to my obedience, end quote. A contemporary report tells us that Although Helders, with the exception of Nijmegen, was quickly subdued by Charles, he and his troops still brought death and destruction down on the local folk. One chronicler, a priest from Bake called Peter Trekpool, wrote about this in very old and difficult to read Dutch, which fortunately, gelukkig for us, was written in legible modern Dutch in a blog by Peter Simons for which we thank him greatly and which we have translated into English. Quote, 
So he won Helders and destroyed the noble land miserably, so that even a stone heart would cry. The pride, the contempt, the damage, the evil anger of the duke and his men kept their homes in churches, houses of God. They took away property from the poor countrymen, both in the churches and in their homes. Nothing or no one, rich or poor, was spared. They behaved like dishonorable, wicked people without mercy. End quote. We have often painted the picture of Charles as a rash, aggressive sort. He certainly displayed many examples of living up to the Alexander the Great Mighty Conqueror Prince image that he likely aspired to from a young age, but he was also intelligent and utilized many means other than military might to achieve his ambitions. The key to inheriting Helders, for instance, had been in backing Arnold over his son and basically letting Arnold run himself into a corner in which his only remaining option was to hand Helders to Charles on a cheeseboard. Once it was in his grip, he maintained a military occupation of the territory, but also enacted sweeping administrative changes that reflected what he and his father before him and his father before him had instituted in previously won lands. He appointed William of Egmont as his stadtholder there, his lieutenant, as well as a ducal council which operated from Arnhem, holding jurisdictional rights over all of Helders. Charles was attempting to further centralise the power throughout his realms, no doubt with an eye on creating a single Burgundian state. We saw in previous episodes how his father, in his centralisation policies, established the Great Council of Burgundy, by which he sought to circumvent the judicial autonomy of the states within his realms. Now, Charles would institute the next iteration of this by creating the Parliament of Mechelen to become the highest court of appeal for anyone in the Burgundian realm. Instead of travelling around following Charles, the Parliament of Mechelen would be based in one place. You guessed it, Mechelen. The idea was to finally, once and for all, remove those parts of the Low Countries which were technically vassals to the French king from the judicial authority of the Parlement of Paris. The Parliament of Mechelen was basically a replacement of it. And it shall be no surprise to learn that the French king was not enamoured with such a move. In the case of the imperial territories, even though the emperors had not traditionally been anywhere near as involved in the Low Countries as the French kings, and had generally granted privileges akin to autonomy, the Mechelen Parliament would provide further evidence that it was most definitely Charles who was sovereign here. We've already had plenty of examples which show just how highly Charles thought of himself, but the words written in the ordinance that created the Parliament of Mechelen does this better than any other. We will quote it as it reads in Magnanimous Dukes and Rising States by Robert Stein. Quote, By the divine goodness and providence that governs and determines all earthly matters, the princes were appointed as the head of the principalities and lordships, so that they, in the place of God our Creator, should maintain the regions, provinces, and nations in unity, agreement, and discipline. End quote. We're all pretty familiar with narcissistic rulers these days, but despite all of his shortcomings, you can definitely say that Charles had a way with words, or at least was able to chuck a coherent sentence together. 
Person, mistress, bastard, horse, sword. Person, mistress, bastard, horse, sword. <laughs> in addition to the parliament, the chambers of accounts in Brussels and Lille were also dissolved and new versions were established in Mechelen, essentially turning the city into the de facto capital of the Low Countries for the next half century. The creation of the Parliament of Mechelen also trampled over different privileges held by the estates in places like Brabant and Hanno, since it overrode their own courts and customs. As you are probably well aware by now, this was very unwelcome among those in the powerful towns of those areas. They were never comfortable with anybody doing anything, let alone undercutting the authority of their long-fought-for local systems of justice. After finishing up his conquest of the region in Zutphen in the summer of 1473, more than one contemporary, including Delamarche, note Charles's intention to then march on Friesland. However, indicating that he was not necessarily sticking to a pre-designed plan, but rather flying by the seat of his brookers, Charles became distracted by other events, and Friesland once more dodged a furiously launched medieval equivalent of a bullet. The first of these events was the death of the Duke of Lorraine on the 24th of July. Lorraine, in between the original territory of Burgundy and the rest of the Low Countries, was important to Charles as a territorial link between his southern and northern dominions, and he desired the right to free troop movement for the mobilization of his armies going between them. He already held the lordship for a part of this region, Upper Alsatz, which he had earlier bought from Sigismund. Secondly, the Archbishop of Cologne, Ruprecht, rocked up at the Burgundian camp, complaining about having a bad case of rebellion. This piqued Charles's attention as another chance to insert his will and power onto another extremely powerful domain. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Charles had an opportunity to go and hang out with the Emperor. Given his aspirations to further climb the Imperial ladder, he left Friesland alone and went to hang out with Frederick. After a whole lot of faffing about, they finally met in Trier on the 30th of September 1473. Charles rocked up with an entourage that included his two puppet, sorry, prince bishops, Louis of Bourbon and Charles's bastard half-brother, David, the Bishop of Utrecht, as well as many others. The initial engagement was painfully tedious, with displays of pomp and etiquette and arrogance to one another being made outside the city walls, but when the two finally came together, they acted as close and dear friends, arguing first over whether they should ride side by side into the city, and then over who was to escort whom to their lodgings first. All of this took place in the pouring down rain, and it would have been unbearable to have to stand there and watch. The conference in Trier lasted a number of weeks, and Charles went into it with the goal of dazzling the Empress so much with his power and prominence that he would be crowned King of the Romans and hopefully be named for succession as Emperor. The Emperor, on the other hand, wanted one thing above all else, and that was to secure Mary of Burgundy's hand in a wedding alliance that would make his son, Maximilian, the married-in heir to all those Burgundian realms and wealth. By mid-October, there had been a series of lengthy conversations, but still no result. One of the papal legates there wrote back to his boss in the Vatican, the Pope, quote, 
The Duke would not agree to the marriage except in return for the Kingdom of the Romans, but His Imperial Majesty would agree, only, to give him a vicariate and certain other things. End quote. Remember, this was not the first time Frederick had dealt with a Burgundian Duke seeking a kingship. He had had just such negotiations with Philip the Good more than once. Philip's intentions had been for a kingship of the territories he already ruled, but Charles here was upping his demands. Now seeking to become king of the Romans, he was going for an already existing and symbolically very powerful throne that would eventually elevate him beyond anybody else. However, by the end of October, it was becoming clear that he was not going to get this. So he wrote up a list of four demands from the emperor, one of which was to be formally invested with the Duchy of Helders. Eventually, this is what sprang forth from the imperial will. A big ceremony in Trier's main market square on the 6th of November made that official, and is likely the point that Charles gave up on the whole future King of the Romans thing. It does seem, however, that he was still on track to get what his father had sought, which was a brand spanking new version of the long-dead Kingdom of Burgundy. A contemporary reported on all of this, quote, The most serene Lord Emperor has consented to restore and to create, and he will now restore and create, for the Lord Duke of Burgundy, the Kingdom of Burgundy, in the person of the aforesaid Lord Duke, for himself, and his heirs and successors, male and female, with all the dignities, rights, and prerogatives, which in any way belong to the said Kingdom of Burgundy. End quote. This was outstanding news, and rumors spread quickly throughout Europe about it. This linking of the emperor and the most powerful prince in Europe becoming a king, their children would be married, Maximilian and Mary, and the domains of Charles would become the four duchies of Holland, Zeeland, Brabant, and Helders, ruled by their King of Burgundy. Duke William of Saxony even received direct information that Charles had indeed already been crowned. This is obviously not the case, but there is great evidence that preparations for a coronation were being made in Trier. Official garb was organized and requisite equipment. Charles had a fancy scepter made for himself. Speeches were written. Church grounds were prepared. It really does seem that he was about to be crowned. But then, before it had actually happened, Frederick III up and left on the 25th of November, having given notice of these intentions just the day before. Some representatives of one random margrave reported, quote, The emperor rose at daybreak on 25th of November and hurriedly took ship. Peter von Hagenbach followed after his grace in a rowing boat and told the emperor that the duke was distressed that he had got up so early. He had not expected this, and he asked him to go slowly so that the Duke could come and take friendly leave of him and talk further about all sorts of things. The Emperor agreed if he was not too long. So the ships drifted without oars for half an hour. When the Duke did not come, Peter von Hagenbach said he would hurry to the Duke so that he would come soon, but as soon as he had rowed away and was out of sight, the Emperor had his oars put out and rowed off so the Duke did not come to see the Emperor off as arranged. End quote. If you're thinking, these two men sound like petulant children, well, yeah, we agree. What the terms for this almost coronation actually were, and why it never eventuated, remain absolute mysteries. One theory is that 
given how sure he may have been about being named King of the Romans, Charles was disappointed enough to reject anything else offered, even a kingdom of Burgundy. Perhaps like his father before him, what had actually been offered was essentially just Friesland, which Charles did not even really, let's face it, have much control over. Another theory is that if this new kingdom included the actual Duchy of Burgundy, then it would remain threatened by France. Burgundy had been a kingdom many centuries before, but it was turned into a vassal by French monarchs. The truth is that nobody knows why Charles's coronation never happened. Something compelled Frederick to leave rather unexpectedly, and Charles, at the end of 1473, was still crownless. And that is where we will leave him for this episode. It has been a big five years for Charlie Boy, having ascended to power, crushed revolts, destroyed cities, chastened subjects, and added a whole new domain to his realm of power and control. He had displayed the kind of prestige and honour that would have made his father proud and even gotten the emperor to the table to discuss a crown. Sadly for Charles, though, he had also unwittingly already become involved in the conflict that would leave him lying unrecognisably dead in a ditch, that between Sigismund of Habsburg and the Swiss Eidgenossen. That's all for another episode, but in case you are getting frustrated with Charles and, like us, rather sick of the Valois-Burgundian dukes, this is a fair warning. You do not have long to wait before they, too, sink into the soggy, sphagnum marsh of history. Thank you all so much for listening to History of the Netherlands. Normally, at this point, we would plug ourselves and remind you about Patreon. That's still going to happen. But before we do, we want to give you a recommendation for a really good podcast to listen to, The Human Circus by Devin Field. It's a narrative history podcast that covers the period we have spent so much time in so far, the medieval age. It looks at this era through the stories of its travellers, such as a 10th century Abbasid ambassador observing a Viking funeral, a Nestorian monk from China in 13th century Paris, an Elizabethan envoy bringing gifts to the Ottoman Sultan, Franciscans trekking across Asia to see the Mongol Khans, and even Marco Polo. Marco! Hello! In the human circus, Devon uses these stories to explore a medieval world that is much more diverse and interconnected than most people might expect. Most people, that is, except for you being a listener of our show, because congratulations, you've almost made it out of the Burgundian era and have learned how very interconnected even a swamp can be. Subscribe to The Human Circus on all your platforms and visit the website at humancircuspodcast.com. Now back to talking about us. We have been looking at the chartable.com website over the last few weeks. Very, very sad. 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 Since no new reviews of our podcast have been posted. In case you forget... Our hobby is reading positive things about ourselves. If you are enjoying History of the Netherlands, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Facebook, or even just go up to random people, stand one and a half metres away, and softly but audibly whisper, History of the Netherlands podcast, five stars. It would mean the world to us, and you never know, it might make their day. While we are also getting more and more ordained members of the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge, 
We have also been blessed to have some listeners randomly throw cash in the jar via PayPal. Like we are pilgrims embarking upon an epic but daunting adventure to the Holy Land, it would be remiss and undignified were we not to pay proper homage and respect to these beautiful souls. So a huge thanks to the following. Yos, Omas, Van Omra, Cheers, Martha, Ollie Bolandrog, Legend, Saskia Giraud, who wrote the sweetest email to us. She's half French, half Dutch, she's basically a personification of Belgium, and listens to our podcast while running, which is hilarious. To think that I'm able to inspire other people to exercise, but not myself. Ruben Shoppy Copes, thank you very much. And finally, Chuck the Monk, who gave himself his own nickname and seems to be on a pilgrimage of his own. Good on you, Chuck the Monk. Chunk? Sorry, can't help myself. If you want to help keep this show running, your donations go a long way to doing that. Go to our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com, and follow the links. In regard to this, we are also looking for any forms of sponsorship. So if you run or are part of a company whose target audience includes people mostly in the Netherlands and the USA who love history much and all things Dutch, then as such, get in touch. We're easily findable on Twitter at History of NL or email us info at Republic of Amsterdam Radio.com. Finally, if you live in the Netherlands like we do, we've just entered a new phase of this um, uh, interesting year and have gone back into lockdown again. They call the first lockdown an intelligent lockdown, while this one is just a partial lockdown. Both feel pretty similar though, so. Maybe they're just partially intelligent lockdowns? I don't know. In any case, we want you to remember that we're all in this together and we hope that this show provides you at least a little bit of company while we live with radically restricted social lives once more. Stay safe, peace, love, and happiness. Dewey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com From there you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.